Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. Welcome to this special edition of 15 Minutes on the Way, as we celebrate our 150th episode in this project. Today's story is one of the most colorful in all the owner's manual, and to be able to cover all the ground we want to look at together, this will be a special double-length episode. So grab a hot beverage or a cold one, depending on where you are, and let's walk together into the valley as we turn to Ezekiel's most colorful and powerful of illustrations. Now, I know a handful of you fancy yourselves to be leaders of our people today. You, in particular, need to get your owner's manual out and track with us in Ezekiel 34. It's a good word for everyone, though, because every one of you is being led by someone whether you think so or not. Ezekiel's word against corrupt leaders is not a new one, and though we know that we've sounded this note before and don't necessarily intend to sound like a broken record, a broken record is a term stemming from primitive technology in which a brief audio sample loops indefinitely, repeating until physical intervention moves the track further on or stops it altogether. There's little that steams me more than someone acting in my name, but solely to their own benefit. Once again, the perfect parable for caring leadership is the image of a shepherd. A good shepherd, that is. If you're in a position of shepherding our people in one way or another, pay heed to our words in Ezekiel. Israel's shepherds are feasting on the offerings of the people without caring for the people one bit. The people have become a resource for the shepherd when the opposite should be true. Ezekiel's words are just as true for some of you as they were for those that failed us and our people then. You can follow along in Ezekiel 34 too. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. Conversely, if you're someone who wants to be part of our flock, look for a place of safety in which the shepherd does everything Ezekiel prescribes. Strengthening the weak, healing the sick, and so on. If the shepherd talks more about money and how much of yours they're getting from you than he or she does about my deep and abiding care for my children, then proceed with caution. You may have just hit them on Budget Sunday, 
so give them another try, because giving really is an important aspect of life on the way, as it acknowledges our provision of all things to you, while providing the basic needs for servants and continuing Levitical positions, the ones who are supposed to be acting as good shepherds. However, there's a huge difference between being reminded to give as an act of worship versus being reminded to give so that the leader can live in excess and overindulgence. These faulty shepherds then and now provide the contrast to springboard into our solution to the problem. If they cannot be trusted to care for our flock, I am going to do it myself. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Ezekiel 34.12 and following. The fat, faulty shepherds will face justice, and my flock will be safe, for I will shepherd them myself. All of which has a nice pastoral feel, whether you're talking about green pastures or good pastors. I am the ultimate shepherd and I am going to see to my flock. There's more to that than this, though. And once again, we are speaking into an instant circumstance and into the longer term at the same time. We take things to abraplanic levels a few verses later when we advise a bit more on how I am going to shepherd my flock. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. Ezekiel thirty-four twenty-three. By now, surely you've noticed that any mention of Abraham or David in Tom, after we've finished telling their life stories, is a way to trigger your memory of our respective covenants with them. So here's David, who was, of course, a shepherd, who's going to be the shepherd over our flock, the shepherd that I have just said I am going to be. So David and I together are both going to be the shepherd. Only it's not going to be David, because he's dead. By mentioning David, you're to remember our promise to him that someone of his line or seed is going to sit on Israel's throne forever. In David's habitat, they cut all the complicated language to which your habitat is partial of a direct descendant of or someone of his line or seed and just lump all the boys that come later down the line as the son of whoever they're talking about. In this case, that'd be the son of David. That's the language we use in our covenant with him. Here, we've cut out all intermediary language and in shorthand just refer to David, handily invoking all the other resonance in as few words as possible in Tom. 
And so the one who fulfills that rather impossible promise to David of one of his sons down the line reigning on his throne forever will also fulfill this one as the shepherd of our flock. So again in a couple pages later in Ezekiel 37:24. But I've just said I am going to be that shepherd and underscored that there's going to be one shepherd. Are you with me? There is a building confluence as we go along these Abraplanic steps. Promises are being made that no human can fulfill. Only I am able to be this shepherd slash prince slash king. I am going to find a way to pull all these strands together, I assure you. But at this point in the owner's manual, this all seems to be wishful thinking. And so Ezekiel casts another metaphor that relates our role in the renewal of our people that is crucial for the interim generations marking time in Babylon, and for yours as well. You've probably actually had some contact with Ezekiel's vision without realizing it, that is, if you've ever heard or tried to sing about your knee bone being connected to your thigh bone, and so on. Because Ezekiel's vision starts with bones, a whole valley full of them. He doesn't say what flavor they are at first, human, bovine, but the image evokes a sense of a great battlefield from many years past, so long ago that all signs of flesh and garment are gone and all that remains of those who fought there are their dry, sun-bleached bones. This, of course, represents Israel in their current state in Babylon. Well, we say so in Ezekiel 37:11, Defeated and lifeless. You may feel the same way right now, defeated and lifeless. Or if you haven't before, you will in the future. So follow along. We're in Ezekiel 37 if you want Ezekiel to tell you about the bones himself. Of course, they're going to come to life and walk again. So can you. Ezekiel shows us how. You provide the bones. I provide the everything else. Ezekiel's valley bones are laying there inert, as bones do. Remember, you're the bones here, and though you may feel unceasingly active, there's a good chance you're just as inert as these bones on the valley floor when it comes to what counts. The bones have one job, and if the song hasn't started playing in your head yet, it will now. The job of them bones is to hear the word of the Lord. That's in Ezekiel 37.4. But actually, and you know it before I say it, what it says in the text is hear the word of Yahweh. But the lyricist hadn't boned up, had to, my apologies, hadn't boned up on their ancient lingual history to know better. You do, though, and don't you forget it. I'm not going to let you. Now, if you're the type of person who's going to pick this apart and say, bones don't have ears, so they can't hear, then it's unlikely you'll hear anything either. And frankly, we are surprised you're still with us. Here's how the bones come back to life. We tell Ezekiel 
to tell them what we are going to do. Then, as he speaks these things over the listening bones, we bring them to pass. We make promises. They are spoken over and heard by the waiting bones, and then they happen. Ezekiel does as he's told, speaking our promises over the valley of bones. The process is sequential, working its way from the inside bones out. With the rattling of a thousand marimbas, the bones assemble themselves into a field of skeletons. Then, upon the bare, dry bones, I first put sinews and tendons, then flesh and muscle, and then skin. The bones have listened and stood up in obedience to our word. I have done the rest. Now, we could scrutinize detailed metaphors for each of these organs of tendon, flesh, and epidermis, but in the interest of time, we'll let you mull them over yourself. And so, now there are fully-fledged, fully-fleshed bodies where moments ago there was only a giant pile of blanched bones. To say that they were dormant before we got to them would be a compliment. So you, as the bones, you've made a foundational contribution. But part of your ongoing epiphany is to realize and remember over and over just how much we have done and are doing in, with, for, and through you. We know you get the part where we've given you your bones and everything that hangs on them, their ability, strengths, looks, all that. As remarkable as the former bone piles are at this point in the sequence now, standing there with noses and ears and hair and all, there's still something missing from all those bodies out there. Life. In a direct and clear parallel to how we did things with Adam back in Genesis, uh, that would be in our second creation account in Genesis 2, 4, and following, We've got the physical human being all set. Our handiwork is standing there in the thousands now, as opposed to the solo prototype, Adam. Without breath, though, they're just a massive diorama, a lifeless museum exhibit. We mentioned this a bit back then, but it's been quite a while since, whether you're measuring by the episodes 150 today again that you've listened to, or measuring by the millennia that have passed since Adam. So pardon us for making a big deal about breath in Ezekiel's dioramic vision. In Ezekiel's language, ruach is the word for breath, and for wind, and for spirit, and for my spirit, as in 37.1, when the hand of Yahweh came upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh. If you think about it for just a moment, it makes a lot of sense. That wind blowing the trees around, well, some of it is going to go inside your lungs as breath, and you're going to exchange some of the oxygen those trees just made into your bloodstream and swap out some carbon dioxide, those trees will be happy to use themselves. Wind is breath, is life. 
Life is more than just breathing, though. Life is being. Life is spirit. So this breath we are putting into these so far lifeless fleshy bodies carries with it the same layers of truth and being as that first breath we put into Adam. It is not just a biological function. It is our very spirit which moved across the waters at the dawn of time. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. It is our very spirit which has lit up all the prophets, even as Ezekiel has just related. It is our very spirit which has manifest in pillar of cloud and flame, and as our presence, our Shekinah, upon the mercy seat within the temple. And so, just as we breathed life into Adam, we put breath, life, and spirit into the bodies formerly known as bone piles, and a great multitude stands alive and breathing where no life could be found moments ago. I have brought these people back from past, way past the point of no return, restoring life to them, restoring purpose. Not to be too picky about things, but the Hebrew word there that's often translated multitude in verse 10 has a feel of army about it, so translated in the NIV. Good on it. These bones have not been resurrected solely to be able to raise tomatoes in their backyards again, though they may do so, and we have no problem with them enjoying their new life and all the flavors of our creation, their life is renewed with far greater purpose. They will continue the mission upon which I first set their forebears, continuing as humanity's rescue vessel in carrying the Abra plan forward. Having gone through the worst of consequences because of their sin, I will renew them and set them back in the promised land. I will bring them up out of the graves they had dug for themselves, put my spirit within them, and give them life, and put them back on track so that they will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken, and I have done it. Ezekiel 37, again, for the whole sequence. Our restoration will be so complete that it will reach back to the split of the kingdom and the tribes of the north and of the south will be rejoined as one people once more, gathered from every quarter. In keeping with Ezekiel's style of teaching with props, we have him join two sticks in his hand, one representing the northern tribes and the other the southern. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. Ezekiel 37:22. In a moment, Ezekiel will flesh out the next stage of the Abra plan. But before he does, let us not let this opportunity pass to reflect on them bones and that life of yours. You've been with us long enough at this point. You can surely see most, if not all, of it. There have been times when you haven't had the sign, possibility, or hope of life about you. 
nor, if you're not careful, there will be such a time. You've hit the consequential dead end of your sin and or inertia, and it seems that there is no way out of the darkness, just as there's absolutely no way for those bones to walk themselves back out of oblivion. Things are as hopeless as they can possibly be. In fact, all is beyond hope. I am the way out. The promise and call we make to those bones through Ezekiel is our promise and call to you. Hear the word of Yahweh. Stop listening to the voice of the world that'll drive you straight into the trap of that dead, dead end. Instead, listen to me. You know that the issue isn't really whether you can know what I want, but rather whether you want to do and be the things you hear from me. Israel was what she wanted to be, rebelling against us and the way, because she thought the grass was greener on the other side of the life-saving boundaries we had set for her. Where does that lead her? she ends up trapped in the valley of death. Even if the same has happened to you, however, we are here to resurrect you just as fully as those bleached skeleton piles back in Ezekiel's day. Truth be told, even more so. It all boils down to your perspective, your primary outlook, your default settings, if you will. Once Ezekiel's Valley of Bones is alive, every one of those bodies knows that all they provided was that which had no life within itself, bone. They are certainly a part of the recipe, the foundation upon which all else hangs. However, without us and our intervention, they'd still be laying lifeless on the valley floor. So it is with you. You're alive. Congratulations. And what did you do to make that happen? You can credit your parents if you want, but again, their actions amount to providing the bones upon which we build real life. We are the source of all the raw materials that make you, you. Tendons, flesh, skin, breath. That awareness should be your primary orientation, as it's the primary theme of the owner's manual. The other primary lesson here is that I can bring you back to life, no matter what you've done, no matter how low you've stooped, however huge a mess you've made. However dark the dead end into which you've driven yourself or consented for others to take you, However dire the consequences have become to you or even to those you have harmed in your sin, you are not yet a pile of bones. Ezekiel's vision holds the promise that I can bring you back. I can give you new life. I can resurrect you from the dead, friend, and I can do it before you're six feet under. I can do it after that, too, and will, but that's for later. 
So what do the bones do? They hear the word of Yahweh. Listen. Stand up. Call on me to reassemble your life, to breathe my spirit into you. I will. Now, this doesn't mean I'm waving a magic wand and making all the nasty bits go away. Israel is going to remain in exile for another generation, and you may remain in an exile of your own making for a while too. But here's the thing. You can come back on the way with us and in so doing transform exile into something that moves our purposes for you and for the rescue of humanity forward. This is far more than grinning and bearing it, far more than blooming where you're planted. This is turning darkness to light, bones to flesh, despair to hope, death to life. We really can do all that right there in that life of yours that we have given and guarded. Just keep listening when you hear the word of the Lord. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And be good to yourself.